Welcome back to the Biblical History Center podcast. Uh, I am the Executive Director of the Biblical History Center, Carlos Cantu, and of course, as always, our Director of Programming and Education, Ms. Christy Barker. Are you there, Christy? Hey. Hey. <laughs> it's, uh, it's our second podcast. Uh, folks, you're probably wondering if you've been listening, uh, if this is the second time you've logged in, you're probably wondering, why is there only two? Our apologies. Uh, busy season hit us, and then we got hit with a flood before that third podcast. Yes, third podcast. Sorry. Uh, where have we been? And it's only because we have just been incredibly busy, but we're glad to be here. Brian is in the background. I think Brian is going to join us at the next podcast. And then we're also going to have another guest that's uh, another uh, staff member who you'll meet uh, later on in the coming weeks. Uh, so with that being said, Christy, uh, before anything else, how are you today? I know I've seen you around, but uh, I, my door's been closed for a little bit, just for about an hour or so. I'm just in the zone. Everything going okay with you today? Yeah, everything's going well. Um, thankful that it's been busy as it has been uh, for Easter. And, you know, just always thankful for all of our guests who want to come through, especially during the Easter season, but also kind of thankful that while it hasn't slowed down exponentially, it has slowed down enough to where I can catch up on some <laughs> other projects and record a podcast and, and do that now um, and actually get to some of the emails that I've let sit in my inbox for a little bit. That boss of y'all has just put so much of a workload, I tell you. <laughs> Yeah, what's his deal? <laughs> I know, what is his deal? But, you know, speaking of those kind of deals, we have just been uh, doing so much work uh, uh, within the museum as far as inside the building, outside the facility. We've got a lot of things that we're working on. Christy, me and you this morning were just talking about, what is it, about six to seven specific projects that we're yeah. currently uh, in the process of executing. Again, uh, folks, as, 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 uh, as you've been before, uh, the goal for us here at the Biblical History Center is not only to continue inspiring you and in, in teaching you things of the ancient world, but our goal is to continue to evolve so that when you come through those doors, and, and of course, usually in my office, I can hear our guests come, oh, it looks so different. Oh, you didn't have this before. You know, things of that nature really keep, uh, you know, really keep us going, uh, really remind us uh, why we do what we do, and it's because of you. So uh, we've got about seven projects we're juggling right now uh, on top of reservations, on top of Kids Digs, on top of Shepherd's Bread. And over and over and over as, as programming on. continues. Yeah. Yes, yes. So uh, there's just so much that we're doing, uh, but it's all for the good. Uh, it is all for the good of the, of the organization, but also for the glory of God. And that's what we're going to continue to do here at the Biblical History Center. But kicking off, Christy, tell me about what you have found that you felt the need that we needed to put this into the podcast. Yeah. So there have been, I mean, there's always something exciting, in my opinion, coming out of <laughs> even Israel. Today, we found out even today with the yeah. marbles, right? Yeah, so there's always something exciting, in my opinion, happening in the world of archaeology, but especially this time of year, just because, you know, dig season is starting to ramp up, people are starting to get excited about things that they found last year that now that they know what they are, you know, so something that I wanted to talk about today are actually, um, well, there's a couple things, but we, I wanted to start us off with the oldest Canaanite sentence. Oh my goodness. So there have been older Canaanite words found, just words, but this is a complete sentence. It was found on an ivory comb, I believe from Lakshish, which yeah. most people are familiar with Lakshish from their Bibles or for what's known from what's known as the Lakshish reliefs from its time when it was conquered by the Assyrians. It's mentioned before the Assyrians got to Hezekiah and Jerusalem, they conquered the city of Lakshish. 
Um, and so this was found in one of the older layers. I believe it was early Bronze Age three. So this is something that we would see before right before the, the Israelites, really. So this is an old old part of the city, uh, and it's a it's a, a complete sentence. So it's it's really cool. The sentence says. I want to get it exactly right, right okay. here. Yeah, 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 it yeah, says, yeah. may this ivory tusk root out the lice of the hair and of the beard. And that is just such a fitting thing to have on a comb from this time. And it's actually really interesting too, because you can tell from what's left of the comb, it was two-sided. So there were thicker um, tongs, I guess, if you could say that thicker tines of the comb on one side to actually help detangle the hair and then a very fine fine comb on the other side to help remove lice from the the poor person you know get the vermin out of their hair and so we don't know if this was just like a wish over the comb or if it was right. actually intended to be like a magical inscription because many times we if do somebody find was nice. claiming that yeah, name it and claim it theology right here. It's happening. Right, we're claiming it yeah. right now, right? Yeah. This slides out of his hair, out of his beard, right? Oh, yeah. Well, the part that I found, another part of the whole the thing. Command. But, but another part that I found interesting, too, is that they actually found pieces of ancient lice stuck between the tines, which means it, it did its job. It helped to right, remove right. lice from this poor person. That's not only about the, the alphabet, but also just about what was important to people at this time. I mean, I think it's important to everybody to always maintain hygiene. But it, it also shows, too, though, a certain level of wealth in the city at this time. Yes, yeah, not, about to right, right. yeah, not everyone can own ivory. This would have been imported probably from Egypt at the time with the elephants from, from Africa, the ivory from those tusks being used to make combs. And that's why it says tusk of ivory. May it may it keep the, the lice out of your hair and beard. So it's just, yeah, really cool. But what's even, I mean, for me, and you're, you're absolutely right on that. It is a very impressive comb is what they found. But the team, Mm -hmm. The teeth of the comb, they're still there. You see that? Mm -hmm. uh, it is it is impressive that they have hung in there, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, they're they're much shorter than they originally would have been. But, oh, I'm sure. I'm yeah, sure. But it, it reminds me, like, you know, when you go and get, like, a flea comb for your dog or something like that, it works the same way. The tines are so close together and that something so delicate lasted for so long is just really impressive. Oh, man. And, and the beautiful part about it is you continue to to learn uh, the details of this item of this comb and you realize of the ivory right the yeah. ivory being such a value right wealth the wealthy during those times were the only ones who had access to that type of ivory especially yeah. the size of this thing when you say yeah so so that's a sizable piece of ivory to have and it's and it's all one piece to me it looked it doesn't look like it's been pieced together and something i like about this though too is that it's such a relatable thing to have you know what i mean like we still comb our hair today guys still comb their beards today the lice piece might not be as relatable you know unless your kids might bring it home from school or something but it, it's that part might be a little bit less relatable we don't have quite as many vermin uh, affecting us on a daily basis nowadays but it's just so personal you know this but is a very see, personal I, item and, and is it also fair to say christy that we see ivory <laughs> being used uh, in the ancient time just to create uh, whether it was something decorative or even functional objects like we see here as we talk about this comb 
I mean, there was there was not only the value of how they what they used as far as material, but in the things that they made out of it. Oh, absolutely. So that actually brings us really well to the next discovery that I wanted to talk about. And that's all of these ivory riches that are coming out of an excavation uh, adjacent to the city of David in Jerusalem. It's in the Givati parking lot. They're probably just wanting to do some expansion there. And you have to do excavations, especially when you're that close to the city of David before you can build. So, and all of these beautiful stylized ivory pieces are coming out of the ground. Now, these are a little bit later than the comb. So the comb that was found was early Bronze Age three. These all ivory pieces that are coming out of this parking lot excavation are from the Iron Age, Iron Age. Right, right. Which, which is when we would see the kings of Israel. So this would be from about Saul or David's time all the way to 586 when the the Temple Mount fell, Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. So this is something that has been found in the country before or in the Middle East Mesopotamia before, but you typically only see it in very large cultural centers. So like the Assyrian capitals of Nimrod or Samaria or, you know, other, there's a bunch of other cities on that impressive list, but now Jerusalem can be added to that list. And it's not just a few pieces here or there, it's over 1500 ivory pieces that have come out of the, the ground. And these would have decorated like panels on walls, furniture possibly. And we know that that this is kind of to be expected, to be honest with you. I mean, they've never been found before, but in Jerusalem anyway. But the Bible actually in the Old Testament many times mentions ivory furniture and ivory gilding. And just, uh, for example, it says King Solomon in 1 Kings ten eighteen made for himself an ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. So that tells us that ivory is like highly valued or in Amos 6, 4, Amos is denouncing the Israelite nobility who lie on beds of ivory and lounge on their couches. So it's usually considered, you know, very valuable thing and is associated with a palatial residences like we would expect to see in the city of David. And then, it, 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 correct me if I'm also wrong on this, because I've read throughout history, when it comes to ivory, ivory, despite them being used, uh, as we saw, referred uh, in combs or made for decorative pieces, ivory itself, in many cultures, including in what we're reading today, uh, they have magical and religious uh, significance attached to them. Is that fair to say as well, that we see that even in the ironing? So... I think it probably depends on the culture. So if we're looking at, you know, monotheistic culture, we're looking at Jewish culture here in the Old Testament, I doubt that they subscribe subscribed any magical properties to the ivory decorating their homes. I think it was just more of a status symbol. But if we go farther afield, or if we're looking at possible citizens of Israel who are practicing paganism, then... Then, then there is possibly a, a magical kind of element, which is probably uh, attached to some kind of god, some kind of goddess, some kind of worship item. Is that fair? Po- possibly. That's not really what we're seeing with the the ivory fragments that are coming out of the city of David excavation here. These are definitely more decorative pieces. Sure. So these are not like 
uh, worship focused pieces, but it would not surprise me if there were at one point, you know, idols made out of ivory or some other sort of worship implements. Yeah. Yeah, no, I uh, I think it's the one uh, that we were looking at earlier. This was uh, tiles, correct? Yes. I'm trying to make out what it was. Can you tell? It's almost as if it's flowers around the corner. Yeah, uh, so, so those are kind of like the Iron Age answer to the rosette. Those are considered like little rosettes around the edge. And then in the middle, this is a stylized tree. Because if you look, you can kind of see these palm branches sticking out. So this is probably supposed to be a stylized palm tree. Date palms were alive and well in the land of Israel in the Iron Age and still are if you've ever been. They're everywhere. So, So yeah, it's probably a stylized date palm. And it just blows my mind too that out of the 1500 that they found like these are pieces that fit together um, right right you see they're getting yeah. whole chunks yeah 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 we can yeah, kind of see the picture yeah and you see the, the geometry the i mean such such beautiful items no 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 i i uh when, when you were discussing this i goodness how beautiful uh and that was just recently this month uh, that we find this discovery. So very, very good information. Now, look, coming out of Easter, uh, and we have focused here at the Biblical History Center with our empty tomb tours, uh, we cannot forget, of course, uh, to talk about Jesus, because that's also what we do. But today, now that we've covered these items, since we wanted to talk about new discoveries, we want to look at, and it's fair to say, Christy, that this is Jesus in the synagogue and some of the things that are connected to that. Yeah. So I wanted to just look and talk about, you know, there's there's always archaeological excavations, like I said, going on in Israel. But in the Galilee region, something that's always especially interesting to take note of when you're excavating a new town or a village or a city are the synagogues in that town or in that city. Because Jesus did not spend his ministry in Jerusalem. You would think that a religious leader at this time, that's what he would do because that is the center of the Jewish religion. What we actually see Jesus doing in the Gospels is spending a majority of his time in Galilee, where he grew up, in that area. So, and the Bible also describes him as going from synagogue to synagogue, teaching and preaching. I know, for me anyway, growing up, when I thought of Jesus preaching in the Galilee area, I always thought of, um, I, I always thought of, you know, like the Sermon on the Mount and him standing on a hill somewhere and everyone, you know, listening to him. And there was some of that, absolutely. But we also see him going from synagogue to synagogue, preaching and, and teaching. And so the question when you find a synagogue in Galilee is always, could Jesus have, have taught here? And so- And there's two, there's two well, if I'm not mistaken. There are some, there's at, least, there's at least two where we know Jesus had to have been, but there's some others that are, are considering being added to the list. So the general rule of thumb is, you know, obviously it has to be a synagogue, but there were some synagogues that were built after Jesus. So you kind of have to, you know, weed those out and that kind of thing. But some cities that we see him teaching in often, you know, we see him teaching in Nazareth, first of all, in Luke chapter four, he taught uh, in the synagogue there, he read a verse from Isaiah, and then it was like the shortest sermon ever. This has now been fulfilled within your hearing. And 
So, and if you think about it though, this is an excellent place for Jesus to minister because of the way that the ancient synagogue works. So we know that there are some synagogues that would be designated to just a specific sect of Judaism. So for example, the Essenes or the Pharisees or- Right, uh, this was a public- like that. Yes, so the right. most synagogues, we, okay, so it has to do with the, the word itself, synagogue, is actually comes from the Greek word synagogue. But if we go to the Hebrew, the word for synagogue is knesset, which means meeting house. And so if you look at Israeli politics today, their parliament building is called the Knesset because it's a meeting house. And so this is what you would have called the, the synagogues in Hebrew is Knesset. It's a meeting house. When we talk about the synagogue here in our time tunnel, I always like to compare it to the church on Little House on the Prairie. There you because go. If, if you look at the church, they're not just using it to meet for services. And it's the same Everything, thing with the right. ancient synagogue. You're not just using it to meet for services. You're using it to teach. This is where your school is going to be. Anytime the community needs to come and make a decision together, this is where they're going to be doing that. You know, the the terrible thing that happened at Masada, the siege there with the uh, men and the elders of the community just having to decide what they were going to do about the siege. They met in the synagogue at Masada to talk over their fate and, and make a plan as to what they were going to do. And so, yeah, it's just, it's so much more than, than, than just a place where you go to listen to teaching. Right. Right. And so it would have, it would have been a great place for him to access all kinds of people within the community, uh, not just religious leaders, but anyone who wanted to come in and listen, all would have been welcome. I'm one of the things that, that stuck out to me, Christy, is as they were uncovering these two synagogues, is they started noticing uh, things within the synagogue, such as the seating arrangement. Is that correct? Uh, as far as uh, what the interior walls were looking like, uh, they started to realize more and more and more that this was a synagogue that they were uncovering because of what they were finding. Yeah, so synagogues usually all have the same basic kind of set up, especially in the first right, century, right, right. nobody cared if you could see the speaker. <laughs> nobody cared if you could see the rabbi. Christy, okay. is, is, is this something that uh, you've experienced before? Is that correct? Is that, yeah. is that fair to say? <laughs> yeah. So nobody cared if you could see the rabbi. It was all about being able to hear. Um, and so the building would be designed in such a way to where, you know, 400 people in some of these synagogues could be housed and you could still hear the speakers. So there's all kinds of pillars and stuff that are probably going to be in your way uh, where you cannot see, but you'll still imagine, be able to to hear. You imagine un unearthing the frescoed wall, the painted columns, oh, yeah. the mosaic floors as you're Oh, yeah. Well, especially, you know, we're kind of talking about a little bit about the Magdala one of the Magdala synagogues, there were two uncovered in Magdala specifically, which makes sense because of its population density. You you need more than one building at that point to accommodate. But they 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 depending on the size, they could be very beautiful buildings. Now we do find some backwater synagogues where there only would have been, you know, not even a hundred people present and you know, very, very small buildings. And those aren't usually as highly decorated, but the one at, at Magdala that we're referring to has some beautiful frescoes, beautiful mosaic floors, columns to help hold up the ceiling. But honestly, my favorite part of that synagogue is actually the floor, because not only is there Jewish symbolism on the floor, we actually start seeing some early Christian symbols in the mosaic okay. as well. Right, right. 
because many of the early Christians were Jews. And so many of the early churches, before it was kind of illegal and, and people were forced to meet in secret, many of the early Christians who were Jewish found it very natural to meet in the synagogue for their service. Did you notice, did you happen to notice, uh, as, as we're talking about these synagogues, did you happen to notice uh, what was uncovered as far as the inscription? Did you happen to yeah. catch that? Yeah, yeah. So this was actually very eye-opening to me because I have always just assumed, you know, <laughs> why do you need a synagogue in Jerusalem, right? There's the temple right there. So an inscription was found. No synagogue has been uncovered in Jerusalem, by the way, none from this time, but an inscription from it has been found Confirmed. <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a secondary or tertiary possibly location. And so there's no archeological remains. Evidence does exist and it's called the Theodotus inscription. And um, apparently this was a synagogue that was founded by Theodotus, who was a priest. So that's kind of why it makes sense that it's in Jerusalem. And also the head of the, the synagogue. And he's in the inscription, it says, for the reading of the law and the teaching of the commandments. Um, and it was meant to accommodate Jewish pilgrims who came from out of town to to Jerusalem. So that yeah. was definitely a designation. Yeah. And that and it was first century, too, which is what's interesting. So the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. in the first century. And so yeah it, it's it's interesting to see that possibly pre-temple destruction when you can just go to the temple and worship <laughs> right we see but maybe this was just made you know space is limited maybe this was made to accommodate more people i don't know there was possibly a synagogue in the first century in jesus's time in jerusalem so i, I thought that was interesting oh yeah because yeah. up until you know i learned about this inscription I, I always thought, well, there's no way that there's a, a synagogue there. Like, why would you need a synagogue mm -hmm. in Jerusalem? But I guess they, they saw a need. Yeah. So, Well, listen, I, I don't want to go too much into this, but I'm having a hard time with the images. I can't really see them quite well. Did you happen to catch the stones that were found and the items on the stone? I think I see, is it a menorah that I'm looking at? possibly a column on the stones. Yeah. I think that's what I'm seeing. Am I catching that correctly? Yeah, so you're looking at the Magdala stones and one of them is, is very beautifully decorated. It has a menorah. It has a beautiful kind of floral pattern. It's symmetrical heart columns, there. jars. That's probably not a heart <laughs> um, just because of the, the time. But it's got you know, all kinds of decoration on it. So this is actually fairly, I wouldn't say typical, but it is not unexpected to see from a synagogue in the first century, something that's highly decorated. And this is what I would call typical Jewish art from the time. So you see that it's all inanimate objects of columns and jars or plants. Like there's a floral pattern there of what I think is either sheaves of wheat or possibly date palms and a nice rosette there in the middle. Um, there's a menorah, which is expected Jewish symbolism from this time as well. But there's two things that we don't see, right? And it's two things that we see all over Greco-Roman art, which are people and animals. Those are two things that you never, never uh, see really in Jewish art uh, from this time. You see it a little bit later. There's a few synagogues where we even see a zodiac calendar. But that's, that's I would say this is more stereotypical um, Jewish art from, from this time. 
And I believe that the fact that they didn't really put people and animals in art stemmed from the fact that they were afraid of making a graven image accidentally. So you wouldn't want to do that. Well, I'll tell you this. This has is, is certainly been absolutely an impressive, I would say an impressive month of discoveries and the flushing out of these details. Uh, I'm just blown away. Even today. Uh, oh, yeah. We talked about the marbles. I mean, just. Oh, yeah. I, I ran into Carlos's office earlier and I was like, the Vatican is returning. Said, I'm looking at it now. <laughs> the Parthenon marbles. Like, I never thought that would happen within my lifetime. Just because, I mean, it just, you know, why would the Vatican? Not expected, back? right. Yeah, it's right. just not expected. It's not expected. So, I mean, even though he announced it last year, but I, I still wasn't expecting it. So it now I think they're just. Until became, it became real. That's right. right. You're right. Uh, Francis, right, right. Yes. Um, so now they're just waiting for the British Museum to return. They're actually, they have about half of the marbles. So <laughs> there's the other half uh, in the British Museum right now. But anyway, I thought that was very exciting. New archaeological development. Well, Again, I never this. thought it would happen in my lifetime. So. <laughs> Well, I, I never thought uh, Roman Army Day would happen if I could if I could transition into that. Yeah, uh, we have been planning and planning and planning Roman Army Day, folks. Uh, we promise not to take too much of your time as we uh, have started our podcast. But with that being said, we want to talk a little bit about uh, some of the upcoming items that we've got here at the Biblical History Center. We just finished our empty tomb tours, and by popular demand. We've extended them by one week. Is that correct, Christy? Fair to say? Yeah. We've so they're extended through tomorrow. Right, right. This is it till tomorrow, and we can see exactly why. Uh, <laughs> they're running till tomorrow, of course. We are jam-packed, folks, and we're very grateful for that. We're grateful for you. We're grateful for your support, even just listening to this podcast. Uh, but speaking of Roman Army, if I could just circle back, that is happening May 6th. May 6th, uh, we are less than a month away, Christy. Uh, mm -hmm. Christy is no longer pulling her hair out. Uh, <laughs> however, I'm more than sure that her baby is leaping in the womb, knowing <laughs> that it is uh, less than a month away. So save the date. We've got live animals. We've got local artists. We've got live performances. We've got ancient crafting. We've implemented a... Roman Army boot camp, uh, where Roman soldiers or uh, our younger ones, uh, what they would have gone through in ancient times as far as being part of a, the Roman Army. So uh, there's a lot of new things happening. We've got some, of course, we've always got our programming when it comes to biblical meals. We've got some dig scheduled, some shepherd's bread, but we're also having food trucks on site. We've got a lot planned. Uh, Roman Army Day has just grown into an event that people look forward to, but we have expanded that because of the amount of individuals that come to us. So we've got that coming. We've got, of course, STEAM days uh, scheduled ahead. If you are uh, a homeschool mom or a homeschool parent that would love to bring your child over to us to experience STEAM days, go on our website at www.biblicalhistorycenter.com. Get registered. Take a look at some of the lessons we've got upcoming. But if there's anything that I'd like to leave everyone with is we have got a Roman coin expert coming. Is that is that right, Christine? Yes. So Caleb Smith is a Roman coin expert. He's also actually one of our reenactors for Roman Army Day. So he knows all about Rome, all about the Roman world, but he really loves Roman coins in particular. And so he will be giving a virtual lecture here at the end of April, Friday, April 20... April 28th. 
Yes, <laughs> April 28th. I had to look at my calendar. PM. It's okay. It's okay. April 28th at 6 April 28th at 6 p.m. Um, and it's a virtual lecture. And what I love about virtual lectures is that you can enjoy them from the comfort of your own home. Yeah. You don't have to get in your car and drive all the way here, and you still get a world-class lecture sitting on your couch in your pajamas. No judgment. <laughs> like, and, and it's so fun. We always have a great time with these lectures. And like I said, world-class scholarship here that that we're bringing in. Um, so I highly encourage you to check these out if you have any interest good. at all. I'm telling yeah. you, Caleb is good. I'm very impressed by him. He, uh, he did a performance last year on stage here at the Biblical History Center. I mean, the man knows his stuff and very grateful. We're very excited to have him. So folks, go ahead and get on our, uh, on our website. Uh, go ahead and click the virtual lecture towards the bottom. Register for that. Uh, it'll take place once again, April the 28th at 6 p.m. So folks, thank you again for listening. Thank you for tuning in. Find us on all your channels. Make sure you get on our YouTube as well. Like, subscribe, comment, all that good stuff. Uh, so Carlos here, your executive director at the Biblical History Center, signing off and... Bye, guys. Christy, our director of programming education. <laughs> I know you're there. We'll see you next week. <laughs> folks, thanks so much again. Take care. Bye.